Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm attorney John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. And today we are talking with Dr. Jonathan Groner, medical director of the Center for Pediatric Trauma Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Dr. Groner has been vocal in his opposition to the death penalty and gun violence. Today, we'll be talking with him about the death penalty. Welcome, Dr. Groner. Thanks very much for having me on your podcast. We appreciate you being here. Uh, Maybe you can uh, start with telling our listeners, how does a pediatric surgeon get involved in the fight to end the death penalty? Uh, Sure. Well, it's a long story, but basically when I was a uh, general surgery resident, I got interested in the whole issue of um, sort of medical ethics and the medicalization of killing. Uh, I was actually very strongly influenced by a surgery grand rounds I was given back in my training program in Milwaukee, where uh, someone spoke about Robert J. Lifton's book uh, called The Nazi Doctors, which is subtitled Medical Killing and the Psychology of Genocide. So that was a really interesting book. And typically residents uh, sleep through grand rounds because they're always exhausted. But I really paid attention that day and ended up getting the book and reading it. And it kind of sat there until, uh, you know, I came to Columbus and I, um, when I was just ending my fellowship, so in 1993 or four, ended up testifying in a capital murder trial, which was a really interesting experience. And the reason I testified is that the the perpetrator of this crime had killed two individuals, uh, uh, his wife and child, and was actually kind of in the process of attempting to kill a second child when the police broke down the door and arrested him. So the child had serious injuries and came to the hospital, and I was part of the team that uh, treated the child. And so they did, I got a subpoena and uh, um, I went to, it was in a, it was in one of the smaller Ohio counties, which is also interesting because there aren't a lot of capital murder trials in small counties. And, you know, I went to the room and uh, obviously I couldn't watch the trial because I was testifying. But during I was testified, I saw that, you know, all the jurors were, um, you know, sort of looked like uh, farmers in their eighties, you know, all whites, which was interesting. Uh, the uh, defendant's uh, attorney, uh, with all due respect to my colleagues on the podcast here, did not look super qualified. Um, he uh, didn't seem to have a very strong command of, uh, of the law. And um, uh, um, I don't know, he just didn't, wasn't, over, wasn't overwhelmed by his presentation for his client who was clearly fighting for his life. So, I mean, the questions he asked seemed to lead me sort of the wrong way from his client's point of view. So that was, uh, the defendant was convicted, uh, did go to death row, uh, and then ultimately died of uh, illness, cancer on death row, so was not executed. But that sort of started this process of studying lethal injection, because at that time, you know, when I was a medical student and general surgery resident, executions were really rare. And in the 80s, after the first lethal injection, this uptick started and started becoming more and more common. And having read about the Nazi doctors and having seen some information about lethal injection, there were some pretty obvious uh, similarities that could be drawn. I want to get to the uh, Nazi doctors, but a little later on. Before that, am I correct that you've treated both murderers and uh, murder victims in your practice? Well, I, certainly over the arc of my practice, the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, as a general surgery resident in Milwaukee, I definitely 100% treated murderers. Sometimes people were injured in the process of killing. Another time, there's a funny story, but I was taking care of a guy one time whose body was just covered head to toe with tattoos. Nicest guy in the world, but he had stuff like cut along dotted line on his neck and so forth. 
So finally, and he had a medical issue um, uh, that required an operation and he'd come from the pr or prison or maybe he'd just been released. And, you know, we got to be buddies. I took care of him for a couple of weeks. I finally said, well, what were you in prison for? He said murder, you know, but, you know, he's an older guy now. You know, a lot of murderers in their 20s are a little bit different by the time they're in their 50s or 60s. So, so definitely, I definitely take care of, of both, you know, and, and sometimes even working here in town, uh, I've taken care of kids who've done some really bad things and ended up in the hospital. Dr. Groner, you're, you're talking about the uh, lawsuit, um, the, the prosecution. Um, you were actually then called by the prosecutor to testify in the prosecutor's case. Uh, at that time, were you against the death penalty? And did that come out in your uh, testimony or in, in any of your conversations with the prosecutor? So, I mean, that's a good question. To the best of my recollection, I mean, at that point in my life, I was somewhat of a death penalty agnostic. You know, I knew it was out there, but I certainly didn't worship it, right? So um, I think the issue of my opposition to catalytic punishment has come up later and pointedly when I have testified sort of for the other side on the behalf of uh, people who are scheduled to be executed in litigation against the death penalty. For example, I testified in uh, Arkansas about their... Uh, um, execution process. And that was definitely a point of contention. Um, you know, are you against the death penalty? Because I've obviously written that I have. And, and so the reply is, well, you know, why would I be here if I didn't have an opinion about it? So does that make sense? So, but that, so that came up later. So our listeners know in Ohio, the only approved uh, way to uh, execute uh, somebody is by lethal injection. And sometime last year, our governor put a moratorium on that because they're having a difficult time getting the, the, um, the drugs that they need for, for doing that. Can you speak to that process here in Ohio? Sure. I mean, um, I mean the whole lethal injection drug process is a long and interesting story because, uh, I mean, a tremendous amount of research was done even on the electric chair. I mean, even Thomas Edison did it, you know. The whole lethal injection process, I mean, to me, uh, this may sound a little sexist or even ageist, but it reminds me of like grandmothers exchanging recipes. I mean, that's pretty much how the prison system has done it. Oh, we got some of this. Well, this work. Well, we got some of that. You know, it's just crazy, totally non-scientific, totally unresearched. And at one point, um, they were going to switch to propofol. You know, this is the famous Michael Jackson drug, right? Well, the company that made propofol did not want their drug using for being used for executions. I mean, that's part of this whole paradox is that uh, capital punishment is promoted as, an, as a societal good, yet nobody wants to touch it, right? And the drug company said it would take propofol out of the U.S. market. Propofol, you know, we've, we use it, at, you know, hundreds of times a day. It's a great drug for indu inducing anesthetic. I had it myself and I had my knee scoped. I know it's a really good drug. If that went off the market, it would really be terrible. So um, a lot of subterfuge has been used to get the drugs. They've used compounding pharmacies um, because basically legitimate drug companies do not want their medications associated with the machinery of death. So it's been a big struggle. The other issue that's worth touching on because it's really important in Ohio is actually getting the drugs into the inmate, which involves putting IVs in, which has been a huge problem in that state. And we should probably talk about that as well. From one of, from some of the material that I, I read that you provided us, uh, 
a big issue is whether uh, doctors should be assisting in this process at all. And I find it a little curious that drug companies seem to be on the forefront of denying the drugs um, because I've heard of that. And I obviously have heard of it in Ohio, but I really, until reading your stuff, didn't realize there's a push by physicians to say that this is not what physicians should be doing. Uh, can you address it then from the physician standpoint? Sure. So um, I certainly don't agree with everything that the American Medical Association puts out and certainly not the Ohio State Medical Association, but the AMA does have a really strong position against physician participation in capital punishment in their code of medical ethics. Um, and a lot of allied health people do too. The American Nurses Association, very strong. American Society of Indies Anesthesiologists, not the most progressive organization in the world, has had a very strong position. Um, and there's an interesting story about that. As a one time in California, a judge ruled that uh, anesthesiologists had to be present at an execution. And so two anesthesiologists signed up, you know, and, but then he said, the judge said, well, by the way, if things are going wrong, then you have to step in. And they said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. So the head of the Society of Anesthesiologists, you know, wrote this op-ed piece said, you know, you know, lethal injection has caused capital punishment to paint itself in a, to a corner. It's not our job to get it out, which I thought was really good. Um, I once went to the state medical society meeting to try to get the Ohio State Medical Board to discipline doctors who participate in executions. And again, there's a tremendous amount of subterfuge. I mean, doctors have been paid in cash. They've been literally camouflaged in hazmat gear and smuggled in. So it's crazy. And I've written a lot about that because, you know, again, the whole issue is to use lethal injection, you need to get drugs directly into a vein. Um, I've put in a lot of IVs in my day. I could put IVs in patients that weigh um, under 500 grams, right? Less than two pounds. Cause you know, that's what I do for a living, you know? And the anesthesiologist in my hospital, they do it hundreds of times a day. IV insertion is a practice-based skill, right? You know, you have to do them. Read, reading about it doesn't help. So you got this inmate who might be a little dehydrated, he's a little bit nervous, and sometimes they're, they're pretty obese and they're in prison. They're calling one of the prison guards who happens to be an EMT, you know, put an IV in this guy. And this is what happened to Romel Broom. So, I mean, he tried the, the EMT, who I'm pretty sure was a male, tried for two hours. I personally examined Broom. I found 18 places where they tried. When they were getting dressed, desperate, they tried to get a doctor to come in. You know, the next day they said, oh, he's an IV drug abuser. Well, I examined the guy. I know what IV drug abuse looks like. He was not an IV drug abuser. You know, there was a case in Florida with a guy named Jose High. They said the same thing. Uh, the drugs, I mean, they got the IVs in or they thought they were in. They gave the drugs. The guy didn't die. The next day, the, um, the director of the prison said, well, you know, his autopsy showed he had liver disease. Well, that makes no sense. If liver disease, the drugs will work faster, not slower, because you don't break them down. And again, the, at the autopsy, neither, neither catheter was in a vein. They were both alongside the veins. So basically, they're injecting the drugs under his skin. Those particular drugs actually burn a lot. So basically, they were burning him to death. It's like, you know, we used to burn people at the stake. You know, Mr. Hyde essentially burned to death. So, and in his autopsy, you could actually see the burns on his arms because I've seen the autopsy photos. So there's a huge issue with um, to do lethal injection properly requires medical expertise. To bring medical expertise to the death chamber violates the medical ethics of all the medical professional societies. That's the paradox. I got two questions for you. Have any states made it a disciplinary issue for doctors who participate 
and executions. Second question, how is it that you were asked to examine Romel Broom? Okay, so the first question is, as far as I know, no. Um, state medical boards are, tend to be doctors disciplining doctors. And I, I often think about um, analogies between healthcare and law enforcement. Um, it's a whole other issue that we could probably talk about. I mean, um, basically, because I do trauma, uh, burn care, and just like most people aren't happy when an officer walks into your house or whatever, most people aren't happy to see me, you know, frankly. But, uh, but anyways, and, and the, the police discipline, like the FOP, is basically police disciplining police, and it's, so it's, there's a bias factor. And certainly, the Ohio Medical Board would definitely discipline a doctor who was, you know, assaulting patients sexually, one would hope. But things like executions, you know, finer ethical points are a little bit more, have been difficult. I mean, when I went to the, I went down to this OSMA meeting, I was post-call, I was totally sleepy. My wife drove me down there, I had all this testimony, and you could tell they were 100% disinterested. Second question, Romel Broom. Romel Broom's defense team, um, and I can't remember how I know them. So I would say uh, my wife is what we term a recovering lawyer. She's like pretty fully recovered by now, but uh, she knew the uh, um, lawyers involved and they invited me to go down. And I have to say that was a trip that um, it's an experience of a lifetime to go into a maximum security prison. Um, and the interesting thing is they don't execute people at the prisons where they live for years. I think it's because the death row population, I mean, these guys are older, they're not violent, they're pretty easy to take care of. So they sent them down to Lucasville as you recall, when I first moved here, there was a terrible riot. And I think the Lucasville people, they don't know the guys. They, it's quite an experience. There was not a single prisoner in the yard. And I went to this medical block, and he was in something the size of a phone booth, but it was made out of steel bars. I said to the guard, you know, you're going to have to let him out of there so I can examine him. And, you know, he had shackles. And, you know, this is an older guy. And what I remember about meeting him, it's just his hands were so soft and um, – my father, uh, who developed Alzheimer's kind of early, so he'd been like a gardener all his life and had like these really calloused hands in his later years in the nursing home. His hands were really smooth and, you know, because he was never outside, didn't do any work. That was Romel Broom. It was a man who'd basically been, you know, in a cell, you know, my dad was in a room and confined to bed, you know, but, you know, he hadn't been outside in years. Um, and I brought these little stickers and every time I found an IV insertion site, I put a little sticker on it and I took a photo and it took like almost an hour to get all those pictures taken. And they tried his hands, his feet, his arms everywhere. And they just couldn't get an IV in him. Um, and I, ima I imagine this was related to the defense team's effort to persuade a federal court that he should not be, he should not be the subject of a second execution attempt. Correct. Yeah. This is more um, in your area than mine, but the whole issue of can someone be executed twice is an interesting legal question. It has been litigated once in the past. It involved a guy, I think in California, that they put in an electric chair and threw the switch and it blew a fuse. And uh, so it got litigated all the way around again. And supposedly the judge and some governor was supposed to commute him at the last second because that governor had been like college roommates with Brandeis or one of the Supreme Court, but it didn't happen. And he did end up finally getting executed a second time in the electric chair. This is in the 40s or 50s. But yeah, the whole, oh, so is executing someone a second time a cruel and unusual? That was the issue. And to me, there's a larger issue of does lethal injection really work or does executing someone once, if you have to um, 
torture them with needles for a couple of hours. I mean, to me, the gold standard for execution in the United States is the firing squad. I mean, in theory, there's five people with guns. Supposedly only four of them have bullets. They're high-powered rifles. There's a target over the heart. If four bullets hit an inmate's heart, they would just shred it. And when the blood stops going to the brain, you are instantaneously instantaneously unconscious, right? I mean, that's what happens. And when people faint, their blood pressure just falls. It doesn't stop. But so basically that is the gold standard. As far as I can tell, and I've thought about it a lot, um, it's that someone who is executed by firing squad would feel like they've been punched in the chest for about a second and then the lights would go out. And again, as a medical student, I spent some time in the intensive care unit on the cardiac unit, which was not what I ended up doing, but I was one standing next to a patient's bed when he went into ventricular fibrillation. I saw the monitor got all screwy. I look at the patient, unconscious, instantly. So, um, so I mean, that's kind of the standard that you should be able to render someone instantly unconscious with the firing, with the firing squad. And some of these lethal injections have taken hours, I mean, literally hours of needle torture. But your opposition isn't, your opposition to the death penalty isn't so much that the process we're using is inhumane. It sounds to me like your real focus is just the medical or the ethics issues for doctors. Um, I think it's difficult to disentangle those two subjects, those two issues, because if I was present with Ramel Broon, it would have been a lot hum- more humane. I think I could have gotten the IV in the first or second try. He had great things. They were fine. So I said that one thing. I think, um, and it's an interesting debate. So there are doctors who think doctors should participate. There aren't many. And their sort of framework is that um, their view as a patient with, uh, excuse me, already messed up there, right? Their view is that the inmate with a death sentence is like a terminally ill patient. They're in hospice. And the doctor's role is to like ease them out of this world. You know, my counterpoint to that is that like most patients I know that cancer would really be willing to suffer to live a little longer. They didn't be willing to suffer a lot. I mean, chemo is miserable, right? Or can be. So like Ramel Broom, you know, if I was there, he'd be dead. I wasn't there. So we had two hours of torture. He was still alive. Well, until COVID got him in December. But so, but the analogy is that, you know, I don't buy the hospice argument. Um, I have a lot of problems with capital punishment. The method is one of them just because it impacts how I work every day. I mean, the the gurney that they use in Georgia to put inmates on to execute them is the same one that we have in the trauma room. It's the same one. I've seen pictures of it. You know, the only difference is theirs has leather straps. Ours doesn't. So this whole medicalization, the medicalization of killing is something that I think about every day. And in terms of my overall opposition to the death penalty, and I've come to see that having the ultimate power over someone's life is clearly flawed because humans are flawed. And, you know, I've met people who are you know, free because of innocence claims. And I just don't think the state should have that ultimate power over people because it always gets abused. I mean, think of some of the great uh, uh, um, liberals like Bill Clinton, who took time off of the campaign trail to make sure that Ricky Ray Rector was executed. Ricky Ray Rector had a horrible head injury. He'd been shot in the head. When they took him to the death chamber, he left behind his dessert because he thought he was coming back, right? You know, so... I mean, that's a true story. So, I mean, Ricky Ray Rector had traumatic brain injury, you know, so he did not understand cognitively that he was taken away to be executed. So I, I just think the state should not have that power. And I've come to believe that after looking at a lot of executions. And, um, and so 
that's kind of a long answer to the question. But yes, I, so I am against capital punishment, and I, I know that will come up at some legal proceeding in the future, but it's true. Dr. Groner, when you, um, you're on that side of this issue, there's got to be some pushback either from family or from prosecutors or maybe from friends. Do you, do you see that very much? And uh, that, you know, um, from the uh, victim's uh, point of view, do people try to make an argument to you that uh, this is a good thing uh, all in all? I mean, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I know we're going to be talking about firearms uh, in the future, but I can say something like uh, about common sense, uh, gun safety measures and get just incredible hate mail and insults. The lethal injection stuff, it's amazingly little pushback. I mean, people, first of all, I think people um, who consider themselves uh, anti-abortion and truly pro-life think it's, you know, A to Z, you know, conception to death all the way across. And in that framework, they see support for ending capital punishment. Um, so I haven't had, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people that disagree with me, but the, just the, the sort of level of view, I mean, there was a time when I was working on firearm safety stuff where the security people in my employment told me I should probably take a different route to work every day and come at irregular hours. So I said, well, you know, <laughs> I do sort of come at irregular hours because I'm a surgeon. I'm like, but, but anyway, so, but, so I haven't really seen that. Um, and I'm sure people disagree, but it, it's just, they don't, and I just have not had that sort of hatred and venom that you can see if you work on a firearm policy issue. I get you back to the subject I steered you away from a few minutes back, which was the Nazi doctors. And I think it's called the T4 program. Right. Talk to us about that and related to the death penalty and your medical concerns. Right. So the, um, so before the concentration camps are running full speed in the 40s. So beginning in 1939, um, as the war clouds were gathering and Hitler was cranking up the machinery, they realized that they were going to need some bed capacity. And two, they felt strongly. That, I mean, the Hitlerian idea of Germany was that this pure, strong Aryan race. Now, you could say that resulted in maybe one good thing was the first national anti-smoking campaign and Hitler decided smoking was bad. He actually blamed it on the Jews, of course. But, but anybody with Down syndrome, any you know, misbehaving kids, someone with a club foot, you know, they could all be subject to this, what they called final medical assistance, which is these kids were collected in these group homes and they were killed. Uh, mostly, many by lethal injection, some by starvation. But, and the people who did the killing were doctors. And... Um, and they would kind of go around looking out for people who met these uh, qualifications. Again, you know, any deformity, I'm sure not a single kid with spina bifida, anything like that. And even kids who looked, you know, not Aryan enough might, you know, if they were misbehaving. So, and, and they did a lot of executions. Uh, they were going on in these, you know, smaller towns away from the big cities that people weren't really talking about it, but it was cloaked in medical terminology. Um, and as things went on to the sort of the full spread, you know, Shoah, Holocaust, you know, I mean, there's a famous quote, you know, about, you know, sort of the, the Jew is a cancer on German society. We have to cut out the cancer. So they used a lot of medical terminology and they sort of, um, they took people who were 
venerated doctors in their communities and helped turn them into killers. And they co-opted the medical community. And they did it in steps, you know, and I'm I, very conscious of that. I mean, you know, that, that subject comes up and, you know, the quote interrogation of prisoners at Guantanamo or get doctors there to supervise the, you know, waterboarding to make sure it doesn't get too severe. Or, I mean, the Soviet Union used, uh, uh, you know, mental health professionals to do psychological torture. So, I mean, to me, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a pediatric surgeon. I mean, people actually turn over their children to me or I cut them open out of their sight. I mean, that's what I do, you know? I mean, sometimes it, it will happen that someone who's not even a day old will come, you know, with some, obviously with some, I mean, that, that bond is really important, that faith. But I mean, uh, when I went up to get my shot of the Schottenstein, one of the guys there came over to me had operated on his baby, you know, and just to thank me. And, you know, so how does someone do that? How does someone trust me the life of this less than 20 hour baby to do a major operation? Because I tell them if I don't do this, you know, I need to do this to save your baby's life. And you could just say, yeah, right. And walk away. Right. And that's a really important bond. And if you ever use that trust and faith to cause harm in any way, you know, you can destroy that bond. And that's happened. I mean, we've seen that some with some of the vaccination stuff where people don't believe the doctor. And I people, oh, I don't believe the doctor. So it's really important to preserve that that bond and, and you know the Nazi doctors they broke it and I think it had a horrible impact on society. And I think as you know medical professionals professionals, that's part of our duty is that we should only work for societal good. And if we cross that line, you know, whether it's you know psychological torture, anything I mentioned, then that's really a net negative for society. I had the opportunity to go down to Lucasville, I think it was 2014, or maybe even before that. But in any case, I went down to uh, death row, I also went into the death house. And then I had the opportunity to talk with Judge Frost before he retired about this very rigid protocol that goes on for 30 days before a man is executed, where there are a number of hearings to, to talk about the whole procedure, what's going to happen with him, what's going to happen with the victims who attend, et cetera. And then, as you've mentioned in your writings, this there's this antiseptic approach to killing people. The, the whole thing is just kind of perverse in that there's all this attention to detail to killing someone. And I'm just kind of wondering how we've gotten to this place where we've tried to dress it up as something to protect ourselves from the reality of what we're doing, which is killing people. Have any thoughts on that? Um, I do. I think one thing is... Um Again, I've, I've not been in the death chamber. I've seen photos of it. The one way to get people to do things that may seem morally questionable is called the diffusion of responsibility, right? So you give each person one little piece of that, and in that 30-day protocol, each person has his, his or her own little step, you know? So, and I think the Nazis were also very good at doing that, like the diffusion of responsibility, you know? Um, in some of the trials at Nuremberg, you know, the defense was, well, you know, I was just taking orders. I was just doing my part. So, so diffusion responsibility helps people do things that may feel amoral to them. So that's one issue. I also think that in general, in the United States, we are very ambivalent about capital punishment. That um, the firing squad, which as I said, is very efficient, uh, finding um, evidence of botched firing squad executions is very difficult. 
um, death is almost instantaneous, but it's really messy. I mean, there's a lot of cleanup afterwards. Um, lethal injection, I mean, I've literally seen pictures of execution chambers where it looks like outpatient surgery. I mean, it's clean, that's the same gurney, they got the IVs hanging, sometimes they have the EKG monitor. I mean, I could take out someone's appendix in a, in a death chamber in some places. You know, I just, it's just, and I think that that speaks to our ambivalence, that if it just looks like someone's going to sleep and it looks nice and clean, um, we are much more accepting of the proposition that the state can take a life. But if involved, uh, um, you know, a lot of blood or, you know, the electric chair or, you know, in the 90s, people were catching on fire pretty regularly and the smells are horrible, then that's all, then people are less inclined to it. And I think um, the overall national mood towards capital punishment is pretty low right now. I think there's some good studies that show that. Um, most of the people on death row today will die of uh, old age-related diseases rather than executions. Um, so I think um, there's definitely a downswing and there is um, pretty good, um, there is some momentum in Ohio for and abolish uh, bill in the legislature. Well, yeah, bill was just introduced not long ago. That's kind of where I was going to uh, go with one of my questions, because as I sit here and listen to you, doctor, it seems to me that people with various perspectives are have a common goal of of stopping capital punishment. You come to this through medical ethics in the um, in lethal injection. Uh, drug companies, it appears to me, are withholding their product. I know prosecutors uh, around the state find that the costs of, one, just bringing somebody to trial in a death penalty case is incredible. Then there's the cost of appeals and all that, all that time. So I think a lot of times that gives them political cover to, to oppose death penalty. We've got obviously the governor with the moratorium, but there is Senate Bill 103, one of the sponsors is a Republican, um, uh, Senator Huffman, not president of the Senate, but uh, I think a cousin. And uh, he was a, I think he was a pediatric uh, uh, physician um, at one time in the, in the emergency room. So my question to you is, is, and maybe you were getting to that, do you, are you encouraged by this progress? And do you see that maybe in the future, if not in Ohio, but everywhere, this, uh, the death penalty will finally go away? So yes, I am encouraged. I think, um, I mean, just the sort of the death penalty uh, curve, you know, sort of looks like our big COVID wave, right? It was slow and that shot up. It mainly shot up when the technology of lethal injection came, uh, came around. You know, that's, that was, I mean, I tracked this for a while, you know, 98, 99% of executions in a given year were due to lethal injection. So I think some are the restrictions on lethal injection. Some is there is a changing public opinion. Um, so I, I am I am hopeful. I think that um, capital punishment also creates this tremendous sort of false promise to the families of the victims. You know, you know, just wait. You know, we're going to get this guy, and then you'll feel better. And I think uh, I mean Dead Man Walking, uh, Sister Helen's book. She actually follows some of the families of the victims after the perpetrator has been killed. And you know what? They still have to deal with their dead loved one. You know that doesn't go away. So I think that's that's there's sort of an implied false promise and people, first of all, they'll put all their pent up anger, rage and energy into making sure that the perpetrator is executed. Um, I think that slows down their healing process. And also they have to, they have to relive 
their loved ones killing just so many times, you know, trials and, and uh, um, you know, as it moves through up the ladder and so forth. And I just, I remember um, an analogy is one time someone told, I heard someone say, not someone I knew personally, but uh, you know, her mother had been killed in the 9-11 attacks. Her mother was on, on one of those planes that crashed into the uh, Twin Tower. She said, you know, I've seen my mother's death a thousand times because you know, it was always on the news. So that's kind of what it's like, I imagine, uh, when you're a victim's family member and you have to go hear the whole story over and over and over as it moves through the appeals process. So that would eliminate that. And um, there's a huge expense and there are huge disparities. Uh, I mean, basically in Ohio, capital murder cases only happen in three counties because they are so expensive. So, you know, if you murder someone in a rural county, you know, you're not going to get charged with a capital offense. I want to go back to this matter of ethics for a minute, where you said that the AMA has pretty strong opinions on its view that doctors shouldn't get involved, but licensing authorities aren't making it an ethical violation. Well, that's why? an interesting question. So, if you but, look at, so why why is that? Well, so uh, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, uh, but the state of Ohio does actually refer to the AMA Code of Medical Ethics, which is a book, or you can look at it online, as their standard for medical ethics. So they do say, yes, we endorse that, that should be the guides, but, but yet they have not enforced that, right? I mean, people, some people made a career out of naming names. This is the doctor we know who was there that night and so forth. I think that um, it's hard for me to say exactly. Again, I think doctors disciplining doctors um, is uh, um, is challenging. Um, uh, there's a great movie about a capital case. It's old now. It's a Thin Blue Line. It's about uh, Thin Blue Line is about a, a juvenile was accused of uh, uh, a murder case in Denver. I think it's by it's by uh, Errol Morris, a very famous filmmaker. It's a documentary, but you know this guy. I think you know sort of the Thin Blue Line is sort of a, a law enforcement sort of wall of silence where they won't disclose when another uh, officer has done something inappropriate. You know, that exists in medicine too. That's another analogy between healthcare and law enforcement that as a group, they don't want to, it's, there's a reluctance that, you know, if you're part of the club to cast you out, I think for sure. And we've seen that in Ohio sometimes. Uh, um, I mean, there are things that cross the line, you know, you know, a doctor doing child pornography, you know, the medical board will, will, will deal with that. But in terms of finer ethical points, it's, it's harder, I think. Let's go back to about uh, 2000, or excuse me, I think it was 1997, Elva Campbell, Elva Campbell, who was being transported to the courthouse and somehow got free from a deputy sheriff. And I can't remember if he executed the deputy sheriff, but he got loose. He killed one or two people. Um, he was, of course, slated for death row, but somehow you were asked to examine him as well. How did that happen? So, um, yeah, Alva Campbell's execution came several years after Romel Broom's execution. Again, both of them are quite elderly. Uh, uh, someone from the uh, defender's office, uh, state public defender's office, asked me to go with them to look at Alva Campbell. Uh, he was in Chillicothe, not in Lucasville. Um, and again, I am not apologizing for any of his crimes. They were horrible. At the time I saw him, he was supposed to have been dead four or five days ago, because after his execution. But it was pretty clear from talking to him that he was dying anyways. Um, uh, he had such horrible health. He, um, I mean, again, I took photos of the IV sites um, on his arms and legs and, and so forth. 
Um, at the time I saw him, he had a colostomy because he had part of his colon taken out. He had horrible um, emphysema. He would cough you know, every couple minutes, a horrible, you know, bone rattling cough. They had discovered in this sort of 30D thing, I guess, when they're getting him ready to be executed, that he actually couldn't lie flat. His uh, emphysema was so bad. So they, they got him one of those big wedge pillows that I used to see when I worked at the VA for people with bad lung disease. So he could, he could not have to lie flat while they were killing him. Um, his veins are so bad. Again, once again, they couldn't find an IV. Um, but when they called off his execution, they actually let him keep the pillow. So actually went back. I mean, the amazing thing about Alva Campbell, I mean, he, again, he did horrible things. Uh, he, I believe he also had a horrible issue with substance abuse. In prison, in that structured environment, he actually did all right. I mean, I think that things I remember about him is that when we went to visit him, his, uh, his attorney brought him a bunch of like crossword puzzles. I thought, you know, you typically think of people death row as not being very bright. I mean, he, he could knock out crossword puzzles all day long. I mean, he obviously had the time. So definitely not lacking intelligence. Um, definitely had significant substance, substance abuse issues. Definitely did better in prison than out of prison. And he had the typical things. Um, you know, very violent childhood, you know, he was uh, preyed upon a lot. And these are pretty uh, important issues. Um, and that's another thing people don't really look at is, uh, I mean, we look at them at the end or about to be executed. A lot of these people have horrible upbringings. Um, there was a lady a bunch of years ago, uh, oh, she's a psychologist, neuropsychologist, who did studies on death row inmates who were sentenced for crimes committed as juveniles. And in her cohort, like 20 or 25 people, like a significant, like maybe three quarters of them had histories of severe traumatic brain injury. You know, I mean, that's just like traumatic brain injury is a classic thing that causes something called loss of executive function. So, you know, you have a bad brain injury, you're from a poor rural background, you don't have any rehab, you don't have any care, and then you're like, you can't make executive decisions. And I, when I first moved to town, as you'll recall, there was a, a kid, a, a young adult who set a fireworks store on fire down south, killed a bunch of people. Right, I remember. Yeah, he'd fallen out of a pickup truck as a kid. I mean, he was, he was a traumatic brain injury survivor and poor executive function, threw a box of matches into a firecracker store, blew the place up. So, but, you know, these are some of the people end up on death row. You know, they, you know there's a book about death row by um, a guy named David Vondre. It's called Among the Lowest of the Dead. And the point is, like, absolutely, you know, death row has absolutely society's refuse, the people who are just very poor uh, sexually abused, abuses children, um, never in stable homes. I mean, that's a large part of the death row population. You know, before we sign off, Dr. Groner, is there anything else you'd like to talk to us about? Yeah, I just want to say that, um, you know, I think about the lethal injection process often. Um, the same things that we do when say an injured child comes into the emergency room who's bleeding to death, say the child's been shot. And we're going to talk about that someday soon. You know, putting in the IVs, you know, getting all the stuff ready, getting the fluids hung up. That's exactly the same process they use for, for uh, executions. And I was offered actually once the opportunity to actually witness an execution, actually be there. And, and I just couldn't do it. I thought that the sight of seeing all of those all that medical technology and expertise that we use to save lives being used to snuff a life out. I thought I just wouldn't be able to handle it, that I, I would never be able to practice again. So I declined. And then in exchange for that, I got to see some of these people who, who survived afterwards. So I would say it does weigh on me heavily. And I'm hoping 
that the day is not far off, that at least in Ohio, we'll be done with this for good. Dr. Groner, thank you for taking time to speak with us today about this issue. Uh, uh, thank you, gentlemen, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I got to add to that. It, it's impressive. Not only are you interested in this matter, but you are extremely well-read and versed on the details, which is impressive. Thank you. And that wraps up our program. Uh, for our listeners, you can find us at our website, which is Lawyer Up Columbus or your favorite podcast app on your phone. Next month, our guest will be Amy Clavin, Director of Move to Prosper. Amy will be talking with us about affordable housing or the lack thereof in Columbus and what her group is doing to literally move people out of poverty into prosperity. So until then, remember to lawyer up. So long. Mm -hmm.